All right, well, uh, here's what I, here's how I want to handle uh, opening God's Word together. This is going to feel a little different than normal because this is going to be uh, more, more pastoral than normal. Typically, we take a section of Scripture and we work through uh, that passage, working out the truths and then the practical implications of it. We're going to work topically this morning, and the topic is what in the world do we as Christians uh, do how do we think about, how do we handle, how do we live in a season like the one that we find ourselves? And so rather than lo- rooting ourselves in one passage of scripture, uh, we're just going to talk about that topic. And what I want to do is I want to, to take five theological truths, five things that we all know, um, that we talk about a lot, and then actually put them into this particular context where we find ourselves and say, what does that actually mean for me today in the middle of a global pandemic that I never thought I would have to address in my life? I never thought I'd have to live through in my life. And so uh, I just want to work through those five items. Uh, I want to invite you, think critically um, about what these mean for you personally think prayerfully about what these mean for you personally. In fact, when, when this service is over, it might even be great for you as a family to have a conversation about how these things intersect with you personally, with you as a family. If you're with your small group, talk about how it is that these things inter- intersect with your small group, how it is that we can be living these things out. And so here we go. Five theological truths that ought to have practical impact on the way we think, act, and live in a time like the one in which we find ourselves. Here is theological truth number one. We are the people of God, but the people of God are still people. Here's what I mean by that. The people of God are subject to the same realities that the rest of humanity finds itself dealing with, specifically two important things, two things that are thrust right in front of our face right now. The first is the fragility of life. The people of God have always been subject to the fragility of human life. Ever since sin and the fall and death entered into the world, uh, we have the hope of something on the backside of death, and yet we still experience the physical reality of death. And so whether we're Uh, The people of God, Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, or those who are not the people of God, all of humanity is subject to that fragility. In this particular season of life, in some unprecedented ways, is putting uh, the reality of that fragility right in front of all of humanity. And we're all having to reckon with the fact that something like illness, on a wide scale, on a broad scale, could force all of us to make certain adjustments in life in order to try to preserve uh, life for the vulnerable among us. This is not something that's entirely unique. Now, this particular pandemic is unique, but this reality coming to the forefront is not something that's entirely unique. Wars, famines, terrorist attacks, previous epidemics throughout history have put the reality of life's precariousness on display at different times in very poignant ways. The church is not immune to any of that. The people of God are not immune to any of that. And though we are God's children, the church, and we share that with one another, we're also members of humanity as a whole. And because of that, our physical lives fall under the same realities as the rest of humanity. And ever since the entrance of sin into the world, that means that the people of God are subject to the fragility of life in the same way that the rest of the world is. We're all having to reckon with that 
right now. Here's the second piece of that. The people of God have always been subject to the futility or the brokenness of creation in light of sin in the fall. With the entrance of sin into the world, all of creation was exposed to what Romans 8 calls futility or brokenness. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation groans, awaiting the day when it will be, creation will be, released from the consequences of sin. Now with both of those, as the people of God, we have a unique perspective. And we need to be able to bring that perspective into the world in which we face today. Because of our position as the people of God, we're able to look at the fragility of life, recognize its reality, not deny it, or pretend that that's not something staring all of the world in the face right now, and yet with confidence declare, oh death, where is your sting? We're the people of God. We recognize that the sting of life's fragility has been swallowed up by the triumphant act of Jesus Christ on the cross and out of the grave, and we can rejoice in that with confidence. And because of our position as the people of God, we're able to look at the futility of, cre of all of creation, recognize its reality, and yet declare triumphantly with Romans chapter 8 that all of this will one day be set free from bondage to decay and into glorious freedom. We're able to do both of these because of the second truth that I want to turn our attention to. The second truth, theological truth, that ought to have practical impact on how we live in a season that's going to be marked for all of history by COVID-19, by the coronavirus. And that second theological truth is this. We are people of faith. In fact, it is that faith that has made us the people of God. And so this second one comes directly out of the first. Look, it's been really common uh, if you're on social media in any way, whether that's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, we're all coming into contact with posts or we're hearing among Christians that we are to be people of faith, not fear. That we walk in faith, we don't walk in fear. Okay, this is true. We are people of faith. It is faith that made us the people of God. But what does this actually mean in the real world? What is it, it, it's great to kind of post that, and it looks good on kind of like a Christian meme or something. But at the same time, we need to be able to think about what that actually means and how it impacts our life. So what is fear, and what is faith? And what does it actually look like to walk in fear versus walking in faith? If we are the people of God, because we are people of faith, how do we actually apply this? Well, let me, s let me start here. Faith and fear uh, are not actually biblical opposites. You see, that's kind of the tension point of the posts that you see on social media. That as if fear means that you have no faith, and to have faith would mean that you have no fear. That's not the way the Bible positions those two things. You see, it's not fear-based for people to try to make wise, socially responsible decisions. It's not faith-filled to take a condescending posture toward those who may be alarmed by what is happening in our world right now. It is not fear-based to take social distancing measures or to work to protect the vulnerable and the at-risk within our midst. In fact, I'll go one step further. There is no such thing as a fearless Christian. You open up scripture, that simply doesn't exist. Let me explain 
what I mean. Do you know that the most common way that the word fear is used in the Bible is that it's used about the people of God and their posture toward the Lord. In fact, it is a fear of the Lord that produces faith. That correctly positioned awe or reverence, fear is the word that the Bible used, is the starting point of faith. And so with that in mind, when we talk about faith and fear, we're not talking about two opposites. What we're actually talking about is correct placement. Where is our fear placed? What the Bible admonishes is misplaced fear. Ultimately, we will end up obeying the thing that we fear. And in the biblical sense, we will end up obeying the thing that we have awe or reverence for. So when we talk about being people of faith rather than people of fear, we ought to be talking about people who are faithfully obedient to the Lord because we reverently fear him more than we fear anything else. And because of that reverent fear, we're obedient to him over and above our obedience to anything else. And so what does that faith or that correctly placed fear look like in a season like the one that we find ourselves in? Well, because the world is ever descending into futility, because humanity is going to be uh, ever living in the reality of life's fragility, we can know two things. We can know with confidence that this world is not our home. We can also know with confidence that we know and have relationship with the one who created life and who holds our eternal life. And so we don't have to act like this place and this life is all that we have. Here's what happens. When something like uh, the threat of the virus, the coronavirus as it exists in our world, is positioned in front of us, misplaced fear would be to allow the reality of that and its impact on the fragility of human life and its evidence of the futility or the brokenness of the world to become the dictator of our action. That would be misplaced fear. It would be to raise that, our awe and our reverence of a virus, to a place where that is what is controlling our action. Faith looks like recognizing the reality of the season and the circumstances that we exist in right now, not diminishing that, not pretending like it doesn't exist, and yet holding it next to, or actually under, our fear and our reverence and our awe for the Lord, so that obedience to him is still the faith-filled means by which we act, not in obedience to a misplaced fear. I believe, and it's even one of the reasons why we ended up uh, suspending for a season here our gatherings, that it is not fear-filled to take measures that are wise and responsible in this season. In fact, what it does is it recognizes the reality of what's happening around us and then holds high the Lord and our awe and our reverence of him and says, how do we act in obedience to him, faith filled because our primary reverence and awe is to him as we walk through this situation. 
God has called us to live and to act a certain way here. We don't just jettison this place as if it doesn't matter. We're obedient to the Lord in this place. We live by every word that comes from his mouth. And to borrow from Jesus, who quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, everything that we do comes from a living by, a feeding off of the words that come from the mouth of the Lord. So when is it important? appropriate or when is it fair to confront a brother or sister about acting in faith versus acting in fear? Well, if it seems like their actions contradict or conflict with obedience to the Lord, it's fair to ask a question about whether or not they're acting out of a misplaced fear. When a brother or sister is living in faith, when they're recognizing the fragility of life and the futility of creation and yet living in response not to a misplaced fear, but to a reverence and an awe for the Lord, we ought to be cheering one another on. And now, all of that is to say this. Different churches, different ministries might have made different decisions than we did. And that is fine. We can take the principles of Scripture, apply them to a current situation, and come to two different outcomes as to what is the right thing. But it doesn't mean one was misplaced fear. It could just mean that we took, how is it that we are supposed to act in reverence and awe to the Lord? And we laid that on top of a situation, and we chose something different. And that's okay. Both actions can be marked by faith, which is a right-placed fear of the Lord. How do we do this well? How do we do all of this well? That's actually item number three. We're the people of God. We are people of faith, and we're people of hope. And that's really what our faith and our reverence and our awe, rightly-placed fear of the Lord, creates inside of us. Hope's actual beginning place is a state of discontentment. We'll talk about that more when we continue in our Hebrews series. But hope springs up as a response to the discontent we have with what is around us. Hope arises when we see the the fragility of life and the futility of the world around us, and we say, is this really it? Is this all that we have? And so by faith, we're living in response to an awe and a reverence and a fear of God rather than a fear of the physical realities among us. And because of that obedience to God, we know that there is hope. We know that there's more to this world than what meets the eye. And so we do two things. Number one, we cling to that hope. We look beyond the fragility of life. It is this hope that allowed, has allowed Christians throughout the ages to persevere in the face of previous historical hardships, be they the results of sin, natural disasters, results of persecution. Why would we stand boldly in the face of those things? Because we're sustained by the hope of this physical body not being our lives' truest and greatest realities. We can look beyond the futility of creation in light of sin and the fall. This world is not our ultimate home. That means that As we watch creation groaning around us, we recognize that our citizenship ultimately resides somewhere else. We cling to the reality that our ultimate home is something that is imperishable, undefiled. That means it's not futile. It's not marked by brokenness. It's something that is unfading, being held out for us. It's been secured for us by Jesus Christ. And so how does that actually intersect? If we cling to hope, the hope of those two things, by faith, which has made us the people of God, How do we respond to that? Well, while we're clinging to hope, we hold out hope. We are to be people who live in such a way that we would have to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. That's from 1 Peter chapter 3. We will never have to give an answer for that if we're not living with hope. Our world right now, on a global scale, 
is being forced to reckon with the fragility of life and the futility of creation around them. There is a general sense underneath the fear and some of the panic and some of the chaos of the discontentment that it is to be human in a broken world. And so the question is, do they see something different in the people of God? Do they see hope? Are we ready to give an answer for why we have that hope? Hope does not look like an aggressive Facebook post. Hope does not look like a condescending attitude toward those who are anxious about the possible outcomes of the coronavirus. Hope looks like peace in the middle of this storm. Hope looks like contentment in the middle of pervasive discontent. Hope looks like grace extended to those who may be handling this situation differently than you or making decisions that you would not have made. Hope looks like tangible acts of love compelled by a faith-filled obedience to God. More on those last two in just a second. As we're holding out hope to the world, the primary thing that we're holding out is the hope of the gospel. That Jesus is the reason for our hope. He extends hope to those who are reckoning with the fragility of human life because after he hung on the cross, he triumphed over the grave. That is the Christian response to the reality of life's fragility. That Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave. And so we don't deny the fact that there's a physical reality of death, but we hold out the hope of the fact that Jesus has defeated that. I believe there's an unrivaled opportunity in the days ahead for the church globally and right here in Liberty to be holding out that exact thing. We also hold out hope to those who are being confronted by the futility of creation in light of sin in the fall. We have the truth of the fact by faith that has made us the people of God that one day God is going to come back and he's going to put right all that has been made wrong by sin. And that not only includes us being taken into glory, it also includes this new heaven and new earth that is not marked by the futility and the brokenness of the current world that we live in. The gospel is the hope-filled answer to both of the challenges that are primarily facing our world at an existential level right now. Here's number four. We are people of grace. Hope looks like grace. And that means this. That means that we're gracious toward leaders who are making difficult decisions. No one has had to make decisions of this nature before. No one is going to get them all right or align them perfectly to all of every individual's sensibilities. No one studied in school leadership in the midst of a pandemic, unless I missed that course offering when I was in college. We can let the rest of the world be condescending or passive-aggressive or unnecessary vocal about the decisions of the leaders of our nation, leaders of our cities and our states, the leaders of our organizations that we are part of. Let the people of God be driven by faith and marked by hope. Let the people of God be quick to extend grace rather than to pronounce grievances. That means we should be quick to abide by the directives of local and national leaders. Yes, this world is not our ultimate home, and that means we ultimately live under a different final authority. But Romans 13 also makes it clear that the people of God are gracious, compassionate members of their society. It is a kind and grace-filled measure for us to abide by the rules and commands of our government so long as they do not contradict our higher authority. If they do, then we will, on, uh, we will take a, a hard stand on the word of God. Not to would be to act with a misplaced fear. But we're going to act in a grace-filled way because hope 
tangibly extended, looks like grace to the people around us. We're gracious to one another, particularly to those who are vulnerable and to those who may be concerned. It's not gracious to mark the fear of those who are anxious in this season. It's not gracious to ridicule the behaviors of those who may not share our hope, share our faith, or share our position as the people of God. Christian men and women should have a completely different outlook. The anxiety that exists in the world ought to generate feelings of grace and compassion within us. Any other response is simply unnecessary at best, or, more importantly, it's not Christ-like. As Jesus looked out over crowds of people, his eyes met them with compassion and grace. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He interacted with them with a grace that illuminated hope, which could be grasped by faith. Our theology drives our action. And that means that we as the people of God should do as Christ did. This grace ought to drive us to my final point, that we are a people of Christ-like love. In the days ahead, should the reality of life during this pandemic continue to intensify and the social distancing measures put in place by national and local authorities continue to increase the difficulties of life for all of us, we want to be a church that moves sacrificially to serve. The only way that movement happens is if it's driven by Christ-like love. It is this love that caused early Christians to minister boldly during the plague, to start hospitals throughout history, to meet the orphan crisis in the 1800s in Europe, and today to work for, th- for things to end, or to work for toward ends of things like the water crisis or um, sex trafficking all over the world. It's Christ-like love that compels the church to do that, a church that's filled with grace because we're filled with hope, because we're filled with faith, because we are the people of God. We want to be able at LCF to extend Christ-like love to a suffering world. This pandemic, both globally and here nationally, is an opportunity for the church, for the people of God, to live by faith in God, holding out the hope of God and exhibiting the grace of God. And that means that we would shine very, very brightly in a world that's marked by a certain and unique sense of darkness right now. My prayer is that we would rise to do just that. Not just this church here in the Northland in Kansas City, but the global church. That we would rise to that end. And that this local expression would be part of doing just that. We extend Christ-like love to our community. Now our staff is beginning the process of reaching out to local partners in order to find out what kind of needs exist right here in our community and how those might intensify or progress in the coming days so that we as a church can meet those needs. We'll be sending those out to you, making those known to you so that you could partner with us in that. But our desire as a staff and as a leadership team in the days ahead, however that might look, is that LCF as a church, as a body of believers, would be a place where our community is able to look for help. A help that's motivated by Christ-like love, because we're acting gracious, because we're filled with hope, because we have faith that make us the people of God. And so uh, we have local partners already in place. Uh, We'll be reaching out to them, trying to gather information, and then we will pass that along to you in the days ahead as it becomes available to us. And then last, we want to be a church that is filled with Christ-like love for our own brothers and sisters right here in our body. We recognize that there are, uh, within our own congregation, varying degrees of vulnerability to uh, this virus. There are some within our congregation who live every day in the reality of the fact that they are immunocompromised. 
And that means that there's a particular and specific kind of anxiety associated with this virus in their daily life. We also recognize that there are many within our congregation who are above 65 years of age. And that creates a certain kind of anxiety as it relates to this virus. And so we want to be able to meet the needs of those people. That could be very simple. Uh, One of the commands of scripture that we just talked about in Hebrews is that we do not neglect meeting with one another. Meeting with one another doesn't have to look like our large Sunday morning gatherings. If you're in small groups, keep meeting. If you have members of your small group or people that you know in our congregation that is who are going to find it increasingly difficult to get out and to interact in the rest of uh, our general society as, the vi- as this virus continues to spread and to ramp up in its prevalence, we should be checking on those people. We should be making phone calls. We should be reaching out. Uh, we should be doing what we can, driven by love and compassion to meet their needs. That could look like going to pick up a bag of groceries because they don't feel comfortable going to the store. That could look like being willing to go and pick up food. And maybe that means you've got to just set it on the doorstep and leave. That's fine. As silly as this sounds, uh, that could mean that basic necessities, things like household cleaners, yes, toilet paper, that there's been a crazy run on at the store, it could be an instance where you, we need to take those kinds of things to the people who exist around us. But in order for us to be able to do that, we need to be, or be able to communicate those needs with one another. Part of that can happen just kind of organically within the life of our congregation, reaching out to one another, checking in on one another, seeing how we can uh, meet each other's needs. Another way for that to happen would be for people within our congregation to communicate those needs to us as a church. And in the information and the communication that's going to be coming from us in the days ahead will be ways for you to let us know what kind of needs you have so that we as a church, whether that's as a staff or pushing that out to the body, how we can be serving you uh, specifically and uniquely in Christ-like love in the days ahead. Let me give you one more. Um, One of the great commands and truths of Scripture is that uh, we not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition we uh, present our requests to the Lord. Here's the reality. One way that we can show Christ-like love to one another is to be sensitive toward the anxieties of the people that exist around us. Uh, Those anxieties might exist for people outside uh, of the people of God, outside of uh, faith. The best way that we can uh, or one very practical way, not, uh, not better or worse, one very practical way that we can be serving those people is to be lifting them up in prayer, uh, to be caring for them and reaching out for them, to be interacting with them and meeting them with a hope-filled faith, with a hope-filled grace in Christ-like love. It's possible that there are people within this very congregation who find themselves uh, anxious about the season that we are in right now. One of the great ways that we can serve each other in a Christ-like love would be to listen to those anxieties and then encourage a turning toward uh, a reverence and an awe for the Lord and joining them in prayer, spending time praying with them, not just doing the thing where you say, yes, I'll pray for that, and then you walk away and you pray somewhere else at a different time, but being on the phone and saying, let's pray about that now calling those who you know might be restricted or really confined in the days ahead and just saying, hey, I'd love to just spend a few minutes praying for you, for your health and for your safety. Another way that we can be doing that in light of our larger community is to spend time praying for our uh, government leaders and our healthcare workers who are going to find themselves increasingly busy and increasingly uh, burdened with decisions 
and uh, difficult challenges and situations ahead of them. We should be lifting them up in prayer. Some of those folks exist in our congregation. Some of those uh, we may not ever have any interaction with, but we ought to be praying for them fervently. We present those requests to the Lord, and we allow him to bring a sense of peace into the midst of that. No one knows exactly what the days ahead are going to look like, but here's what we as Christians ought to know for sure. We are the people of God. We were, we were brought into that family by faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith means that our life's defining fear is an awe and a reverence for the Lord and that we act in response to that. It means that our great hope has been secured for us by Jesus Christ and we cling to that hope and we hold it out to the world. It means that we allow that hope to create a gracious attitude and perspective within us and that then fuels the way we interact with the world, interacting with a sense and with a tangible expression of Christ-like love. Um, I know that the days ahead uh, might look challenging or difficult to some of you. Um, I am uh, finding myself increasingly uh, interested in how it is that the church, both in America and around the world, is going to continue to meet these days. And my prayer is that we do it uh, as a faith-filled, hope-filled, grace-filled, love filled body of people. Let's pray toward that end, and then we'll continue worshiping together. Uh, God, thank you for the chance uh, to spend some time together, dispersed though we are. Lord, I pray that you would continually remind us that we are your people, and that though we're your people, we do not escape the realities of this world. It's just that we come at them, and we stand before them in a different way. We stand before them as people who have been brought into your family by faith in Jesus Christ. And that means that we are obedient to, uh, we live in awe and reverence of you. And when we're tempted to think otherwise, Lord, would you get our fear in the right place? God, I pray that we would hold out a sense of hope to the world. That we would cling to hope personally, but also uh, live with a hope that causes the world to ask us, why is it that you're so hopeful? And when that happens, Lord, would we hold out the hope of the gospel? Would we convey the truth of Jesus Christ and his conquering of death and the reality that he is one day going to bring all of this brokenness into glory? God, would that hope create within us a sense of grace? Would we be gracious toward leaders and others who are making decisions? Would we, would we be gracious toward others who have different viewpoints than us as it relates to this uh, global pandemic? Would we have grace for those who uh, might have a lot of anxiety and uh, fear of this virus, God, and would we meet those individuals with Christ-like love? God, would you inspire this church to move toward people in love? Lord, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like in the days ahead, but I pray that when those moments arise, we would be obedient, we would be bold and faith-filled, obedient action, and that we would meet the world with the kind of grace and compassion and love that Jesus came to serve with. God, we love you. Um, even in the midst of this global pandemic, we're grateful that you've chosen us to be alive at this time, and we pray that we would uh, be the church as you would long for us to be, displaying the hope and the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that's trying to reckon with fragility and futility in ways that are unique to our current circumstances. God, would you work that in your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.